0: I want to welcome those of you who may be listening to our podcast. We're picking back up on the series that we began a few weeks ago from the book of Colossians, actually from the first chapter of the book of Colossians. We've called this series Incomparable. And during the Advent season, what we've been trying to do is, is look at this passage because Colossians 1 gives us the most lofty, the most exalted description of Jesus really that there is in the Bible. And if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Colossians chapter 1 and I'll meet you there in just a moment. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. I don't know if you paid attention or not this past week, but uh, on Thursday, the Hollywood Foreign Press announced their nominees for the Golden Globe Awards. Uh, did, you, did any of you pay attention to that? Raise your hand if you paid in. So not many of you really paid much attention to that. Um, That kicks off the award show season. And even though, you know, we're as a culture sort of obsessed with celebrities all year long, the award show season is sort of the high holy season for celebrities. And our adoration of them and their adoration of themselves kind of goes to a whole new gear during the award show uh, season, kind of goes to a whole new level. And we roll out the red carpet for them and we have shows about the award shows and we have shows that evaluate what they wore at the award shows and we evaluate what they said and uh, shows that evaluate the parties that they go to. And there's just like all this stuff that we do that we pay attention to them. My question is, why do celebrities have such, such an impact on us? Uh, why is it that we seem so um, obsessed with celebrities? And, and, and by the way, it's not just movie stars, is it? I mean, it's, it's uh, billionaires. It can be the musicians. We're fascinated with them. Um, athletes, uh, politicians. We seem fascinated and mesmerized by all of these people. It's almost like some of those folks uh, are our form of royalty in America. I was just thinking about this this past week. Do you know what the nickname of the best player in the NBA is? You know what his nickname is? LeBron James. you know what his nickname is? King James, right. Uh, what, did, what did they call Michael Jackson? Well, I mean, among, what was the nicest thing that they called Michael Jackson uh, when he was alive? The King of Pop, right? Uh, how about Aretha Franklin? Anybody know what she is? Queen of Soul. What was Elvis? The King of Rock. Why, my question is, why do we seem to need to treat celebrities like royalty? A few weeks ago was the 50th anniversary. Uh, that's a hard way to put it. Let's say it this way it marked the 50th, uh, it marked 50 years uh, that, uh, ago that John F. Kennedy was assassinated uh, by Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas. And there were a lot of shows about this, and one of the things I was reminded of during those shows was that um, the media often referred to, back then, they often referred to Kennedy and his administration, his wife, Jacqueline, uh, they, they, sort of re, they, they referred to all of them as um, Camelot. Do you remember that? And Camelot was a reference to the legendary king, Arthur, and his idyllic reign over his kingdom. It's almost like here in America, even though our forefathers fought so hard for democracy, it's, it's almost like we still feel this intuitive need for royalty that we can adore and that we can worship. And it's really not just in America. It's really, I mean, parts of the world that still have royalty, man, do they obsessively adore their royalty. I mean, think... Think Britain and, and all the coverage over Kate and William and their marriage, and then the birth of their of their of their son. Why is there such a need to adore and worship celebrity almost like their royalty? Why is there such need for that? Well, perhaps Colossians one answers that question. If it doesn't answer it directly, I think it answers it uh, indirectly. The passage that we're going to look at today. Um, it has two halves to it. It comes in two halves. There's verses 9 through 14, and then there's verses 15 through 20. And what I want to do today is I'm going to reverse the order. We're going to look at 15 through 20 first, and then we're going to come back and look at verses 9 through 14. And there's a method to my madness, and I'll explain that to you in just a moment. But let's start reading at Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, He, is referring to Jesus, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. I want you to notice that in those verses, there's a great deal of language that calls to mind royalty. You get the word kingdom in there, which implies, of course, a king. Uh, You get the words thrones and authorities. You get this word supremacy, uh, firstborn. Perhaps it's possible that there is something deep inside of us that knows that we were created for a great and transcendent king. And maybe there's something inside of us that longs to worship and adore, even obsess over uh, such a king. One to whom we could... Give ourselves and one to whom we could be subject, and and one who would uh, reign over us with power and wisdom and compassion and grace and justice and mercy. Maybe there's something in us that longs to worship a king who is above all kings. And the Apostle Paul, who is the author of the Book of Colossians, explains in verses 15 through 20 that Jesus is that transcendent King for whom we all long. And here's why I want to look at these passages uh, in reverse. Verses 15 through 20 describe the kingship of Jesus, the kingship of Christ that is. Okay, so say it that way. Verses 15 through 20 describe the kingship of of Christ that is. In other words, Jesus is the king of the universe right now. Uh, Regardless of whether anyone believes it or not, Jesus is the king of the universe. So that's 15 through 20. The the kingship of Christ that is. Now, verses 9 through 14 describe the kingship of Christ that can be. Okay? So you've got the kingship of Christ that is, the kingship of Christ that can be. Or you can think of it this way. Verses 15 through 20 describe the cosmic kingship of Christ... And verses 9 through 14 describe the personal kingship of Christ. Christ is king of the cosmos. That's verses 15 through 20. Verses 9 through 14 are that the king of the cosmos needs to be, should be, it would be best for you if he were the king of your personal life. Okay? So that's how we're, that's how we're breaking these things up. I want you to see... Now, what I want to do is I want you to see why Jesus must be king over your personal life. First, by showing you two things in verses 15 through 20 about Jesus' cosmic kingship. Okay, so that's where we're going to start, verses 15 through 20. I want to show you two things this morning about Jesus' cosmic kingship. And here we go. Here's the first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus is supreme over all creation. He has supremacy over all creation. I want you to notice in verse 15. Verse 15 says that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, this is very important. I want you to listen to this. I told you uh, a few weeks ago, at the start of this series, I said that uh, throughout uh, history, humanity has tried in every way imaginable, to diminish Jesus' significance. And I told you that it was motivated, that 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 intent on diminishing Jesus' significance was motivated by two things. I said it was motivated by humanistic reasons and it was also motivated by demonic forces. And I want to to give you an example of this that's very close to home because they've actually shared a building uh, with us at times. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses would be an example of a group that attempts to diminish the significance of Jesus. And the way that they do that is that they attempt to undermine Jesus' deity using this very passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. And there's two ways that they try to do that. The first is this word in verse 15, firstborn. What they would suggest is that what they what they assert is that that word firstborn means that Jesus had to be a created being. In other words, he's not God. God created Jesus, and in that sense, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He was the first created being over all creation. Now, in order to make that consistent, in order to make that idea consistent, here's what they also do okay, to support that. They subtly alter these verses... In a way that changes the meaning. And here's the way they do it. With one little word that seems so incredibly insignificant. It's the word other. And I want to just show you an example of how that changes. How adding the word other can change the meaning. Look at verse 16 again. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created. Now just imagine, here's what they do. They say, for by him all... And then this is where they insert the word other. By him all. All other things were created. You see how that changes the meaning of the verse? See, in other words, words, Jesus Jesus was a created being, so everything other than Jesus, God created Jesus, then Jesus created everything else. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. And what they attempt to do in that is to undermine Jesus' deity. They're saying he's not God. Now, the problem is the word other isn't in the Greek manuscripts, but, a, but another one of the problems is that the word firstborn that they're referring to here doesn't refer to a created being. The Greek, there is a Greek word that refers to the firstborn of a family, okay? Someone who's created, right? That's not the Greek word that's used here for firstborn. The word that's used here is the word, uh, Greek word that means preeminence, it means supremacy. Okay, it's, it's referring to his position over creation. And what it's saying is that Jesus not only preceded all of creation, but he is sovereign over all of creation. Why? How could he be that? Well, it's because he's God. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. Look at verse uh, look down at verse 19. Verse 19 says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. This word fullness is a word that means completeness. In other words, Jesus was fully God without ever taking away from his humanity. Jesus is a, a created being. He is preexistent uh, over all of creation. He is God. And as such, he has preeminence and supremacy over all creation. There is nothing in creation, there is no person in creation who is more important than Jesus. Look again at verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things were created by him and for him. He is before All things. In other words, He is supreme over all creation. The highest mountains, in all of their snow capped glory and all of their awe inspiring majesty, they quake at the sound of the name of Jesus and they worship him as their creator. Satan and all of his minions, invisible to the human eye, they all tremble at the name of Jesus. Presidents, princes, kings, celebrities, academy award winners, athletes, dictators, authors, pastors, atheists, agnostics, self-help gurus, Nobel prize-winning scientists, Richard Dawkins, the Dalai Lama, all will one day bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is king of the universe. There is no one who is more important than Jesus, no one more exalted than Jesus, no one more supreme than Jesus. He is the creator of the universe. He is the subject and the object of life. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the big K king over all the little K kings of the world. He is supreme. That's what Paul's telling us here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is supreme. And as if that's not enough... I want you to notice something else. He is, this is the second thing I want you to see in this passage this morning. There's many more things that we could talk about, but I want you to see this this morning. That he is the sustainer of all creation. He is not only supreme over all creation, he is the sustainer of all creation. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. Verse 17 says that he is before all things. And then it says, this is a phrase I want you to key in on, and in him all things Hold together. In him, all things hold together. i got to tell you guys something. I have been, through this Advent season, I have been really focusing on this passage in Colossians chapter 1 in my own personal life. And in fact, I'll tell you that for the last few months, I've been thinking about this particular passage. And I want you to know that this little phrase, that in him, all things hold together, I want you to know that that little phrase, I know it, it doesn't seem like much maybe to you, but that little phrase has revolutionized my thinking about Jesus. And I want to try to explain that to you on a, uh, on a cosmic level first, because that's what this is all describing. It's describing Jesus as the cosmic king of the universe, okay? So I want to explain why it's revolutionized my thinking about Jesus on a cosmic level, and then I want to bring it down to a very personal level. On a cosmic level, Paul is affirming two stunning truths here, and he's attributing them to Jesus. One of those truths is that he's saying that the reason that there is physical order in the universe is because of Jesus. Okay, so there's physical order in the universe. You know, all of science is based on the idea of physical order in the universe. I mean, if I uh, if I were to weigh a rock today, if I were to take a rock, put it on a scale, and weigh it, and it weighs two pounds, I know that tomorrow, if I weigh it, it's going to weigh two pounds as well. It's not going to weigh two hundred pounds. Why? Because the universe isn't random. There is order in the universe. Uh, the reason that you can fly on an airplane tomorrow is because the laws of aerodynamics tomorrow will be the same as the laws of aerodynamics today. Because there is order to the universe. The universe isn't chaotic. In other words, one day there's not one set of laws of aerodynamics, and then another day there's another set of laws of aerodynamics. It doesn't work that way. There's physical order to the universe. And Paul is saying this is because of Jesus. By the way, this is a real problem Uh, for atheism. If the universe is just a random collision of, uh, accidental collision of molecules, how do you explain the fact that there is order in the universe? Because that's very difficult for atheism to explain. Paul says that the reason that there is physical order and that it's not all chaotic, that the universe isn't chaotic, is because Jesus is holding it all together. Jesus holds all of the laws of the universe. He created them and he holds all the laws of the universe together, which makes him king of the physical laws of science. But there's another truth that Paul is affirming here. Besides just the fact that there is a a physical order to the universe, Jesus is not only the sustainer of the physical laws of the universe, Paul is affirming that there is also a metaphysical order to the universe because of Jesus. He is the sustainer of the metaphysical order of the universe. Meta just means uh, beyond physics. Uh, metaphysical means beyond what can be seen. This is, what, this is what Paul is referring to in verse 16 when he says that, that, that by him, that Jesus uh, created uh, all things in heaven and earth, visible and, what was the word? Invisible. In other words, there is an invisible reality. Jesus is not only the king of physics, And Jesus is not only the sustainer of physics, but Jesus is also the king and the sustainer of metaphysics. Now understand that one of the ways that humanity has tried to diminish Jesus, and it's very popular uh, today, is that people deny that there is any metaphysical uh, reality. There's nothing supernatural, they say. There's only natural stuff, only things you can see, is what they would argue. But I want to point out that there is an incredible inconsistency in our culture about this on the one hand, we want to say there's there's, there's nothing uh, there's nothing metaphysical there's there's nothing beyond what you can see but we would argue at the same time we in fact we, we most of our pop culture uh, most of the music in our pop culture is written about something that is metaphysical love if all love if, if, if If everything in the universe is just natural, if there's no supernatural, if there's no metaphysical, then why in the world do we write songs celebrating love? Love, if it's all physical, love is nothing more than just chemical reactions nothing special about the person you love it's just that your chemicals in your brain reacted to their chemicals in their brain all at the same time it's just chemical now look chemistry is a fascinating science but why write poetry to chemistry who do you know that writes poetry about chemistry here's another just inconsistency in our culture we want to argue that there is you know that, that they will argue that everything is natural there is no supernatural But if there's no metaphysical reality, why do we get our panties in a wad over injustice? Injustice, to call something unjust, implies that there is a moral order in the universe. And a moral order, by the way, is metaphysical. If there are no metaphysical realities, then Nelson Mandela can't be considered a hero because no one would be able to say that apartheid was wrong. Paul is telling us here that there is a metaphysical reality, there's a metaphysical order, and it all holds together in Jesus. He's the one that created the metaphysical order, and he sustains this metaphysical order. He is the cosmic king over not only physics, but metaphysics. And the reason that life is not a moral chaos, where everyone is doing what seems right to them, the reason for that is because Jesus is the sustainer over the universe. He holds the physical and the metaphysical realities of the universe together. All of that to say that the reason that the universe exists and the reason that there is order in the universe instead of chaos is because Jesus is the king of the universe and he holds all of this together. Now that's part, i just tell you something, that's part of what has revolutionized my thinking about Jesus. I came to a point uh, not all that long ago where I I had this internal longing. I needed a God. I needed a Savior who was bigger than just my own personal life. I needed a Savior who I could worship because He was the Savior over the universe. He was God over the universe, that He was bigger than just me in my life. And Paul says in Colossians 1, here He is right here. His name is Jesus. He's the king. He's the cosmic king over the universe. But that's, that's just part of what revolutionized my thinking about Jesus. Uh, that's not all of it. And here's where I want to change gears, and I want to take this cosmic truth out here about Jesus being the king of the universe, and I want to make it very personal for you. Uh, you will, you will often hear me say, you may have heard me say this before, that good psychology, good psychology is good theology made personal. Let me say it again. Good psychology is good theology made personal. The reason I say that is that you, you need to understand that the reason that Paul takes the time here to describe Jesus' cosmic kingship is that he wants you... He wants to get you to take a good, close look at your own life. And here's what I mean, okay? Here's what I mean. Here's the big principle that you need to walk... If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me say this. This is the big principle that you need to walk away from these verses today with. Because Jesus is the cosmic king, your life will never make sense outside of his rule. Because Jesus is the cosmic king, your life will never make sense if you try to live it outside of his rule. I mean, it just can't. If if it's all created by him, and if it's all created for him, if he is supreme over the universe, and if he is the sustainer of the entire universe, then any part of your life that is outside of his rule will be chaos. You, you'll never understand yourself psychologically. You'll never get out from underneath the chaos of your life. You will never experience the peace that the King of Kings wants to bring into your life until you make him king over your life first and foremost. And then, after you've made him king over your whole life, you begin to make him king over every area of your life king over your career, king over your marriage, king over your finances, king over your family, king over your sexuality, king over your body. King over your addictions. King over your friendships. King over your dreams. Your life will either be an ordered cosmos, like, like, like the whole reign of Jesus over the universe. It will either be an ordered cosmos or it will be chaos. Depending upon the degree to which you make Christ king over your life. Your life will either be an ordered chaos, excuse me, an ordered cosmos, or it will be chaos, depending upon the degree to which you make Jesus Christ king over every area of your life. Now, some of you would say to me, wait a minute, that, Jeff, wait, 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 wait. I, I, don't, I don't agree with you on that. I, my life is chaos right now, and the reason that my life is falling apart is because I just found out that my husband is having an affair. Or I just found out, just a few days here before Christmas, I just found out that I lost my job. Or you might say, my my life is falling apart right now because I always had a dream of having a child and I just found out that I miscarried. And I would say to you, make sure you understand something, that what makes a person's life fall apart is not what happens to you. Regardless of whether you make Christ king over your life or not, bad things are going to happen to you. That's life. What makes a person's life fall apart is not what happens to you. It's how you react to it. And whether you fall apart or not is dependent upon the degree to which you've made Christ king over your life and submitted all of those aspects of your life to him. And so in verses 9 through 14, what Paul is doing is that he's getting very personal With us here. And he's asking you to take a look at your life. And and he's asking you, is your life cosmos, an ordered cosmos, or is it chaos? Which is it? Is it cosmos or is it chaos? That's what Paul's really asking you to do in verses 9 through 14. And let's look at them. Let's start with verse 9. In fact, we'll read 9 through 12 first. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. We'll stop there for just a moment. What is he? What's he saying in these verses? Three important things that I want you to see that he's saying in those verses. First is that spiritual growth, uh, spiritual growth is a process, and you need to see that. He says, "He says the more you know God's will, the more that you will grow." So it's a it's a it's a process. Just because you uh, trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior and made him king over your life at one point in time by faith, it doesn't mean automatically that there's going to be less chaos in your life, okay? It's only as you learn to submit more and more of your life to Christ's kingship that cosmos comes and there's less chaos. The longer you walk with Christ, the more you hear and read and study and expose yourself to the word of God, the more you understand his will, and that plays out in your life over time. It's a process. There are no spiritual giants on the day that they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Okay? So it's a process. But here's the second thing I want you to see. is that the knowledge of his will, Paul says in these verses, is necessary to bring cosmos out of chaos. So you come to Jesus Christ at some point, and you make Him your Savior, and your life is just chaos. It is just chaotic. What makes it more orderly over time is as you get to know uh, His will for your life. That's what He's saying. He says, he says in verse 16, He says, um, he says we, excuse me, I'm sorry, in verse 9, He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying and asking you, excuse me, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. See, as you get to know His will, in other words, as you expose yourself to Scripture, that's where His will is laid out for your life, right here in Scripture, in the Word of God. As you grow in your understanding of His will for your life, then cosmos comes out of chaos. God begins to bring order into your life out of chaos. Remember, verse 17 said that it's in Him that all things hold together. It's when you're in Him, all things hold together. When under Christ's kingship, you begin, as Paul says in these verses, to live a life worthy of Him. Listen to how these words all talk about growth. You live a life worthy of Him. You begin to please Him. You bear fruit. You are strengthened. You gain endurance. You gain patience. You gain joy you grow in thankfulness. As you bring more and more of your life under Christ's kingship, the chaos in your life, the psychological chaos, the intellectual chaos, the, the spiritual chaos, the relational chaos, all of the chaos in your life as you bring, begin to bring more and more of it under Christ's kingship, as you get more and more clear on his will for your life through the scriptures, it begins to turn more into cosmos. And the more you get away from his kingship, the more your life falls apart. So it's a process, he's saying. He's saying you've got to know God's will, and the more you know his will, then the more you can bring your life under him. But there's a third thing that is critically important here that I want you to see. It's that more cosmos, more of the ordered cosmos, comes through... More pleasure. Oh, you did not expect to hear that word. You expected me to say that it comes through more obedience. But I want you to watch this. Look at verse 10. I want you to find the word obey. Find the word obedience there. Verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may... Where's the word obey? Here's the right answer. It ain't there. (laughs) Do you know why it's not there? Here's why. If you've ever loved someone, if you've ever really loved someone, you know that there are moments, I'm not saying it's always this way, it's not always this way, but there are moments where their pleasure is your pleasure. Like There are these moments. If you've ever really loved someone, you know this. We're doing something for them, doing something that they ask you to do, something that brings them pleasure maybe. Is not, it's not a chore. It's not, it, there are moments where it's not a chore. It's not, it's not misery. It's not drudgery. It's not, oh, what a sacrifice I'm making. You know that if you ever really love someone, sometimes there are these moments where it's your pleasure to give them pleasure. Um, years ago, when my middle son Blake was a little guy, he had this fascination with monster trucks. And he wanted to go, we, we lived in Dallas at the time, and he wanted to go, he, we'd, we'd heard about this monster truck rally. And it was going to be down at what was called Reunion Arena. Reunion Arena. Uh, and he wanted to go to this monster truck rally. And I am not a monster truck rally fan. I don't, I've never been to a monster truck rally before. Uh, none of that stuff makes any difference to me. I'd probably never buy a ticket to go to a monster truck rally. But Blake wanted to go. And so I bought us tickets, bought he and I tickets to go to this monster truck rally, and we bought, you know, stuff for our ears to, you know, that way we, you know, wouldn't be just, we wouldn't lose our eardrums because of the monster trucks. And we went to the monster truck rally, and we sat there, and we just watched this monster truck rally. Now, let me tell you something. I'm a guy who does not dig monster trucks. But because he was so excited to be there, I was excited to be there. He loved it carried him out on my shoulders afterwards. He's a little guy. He couldn't hardly talk. And he said, at one point, I was carrying him out. He's here. He's going to be so embarrassed by this. But as I was carrying him out on my shoulders, he said, I love you, Daddy. Oh, my gosh. Can I tell you something? It wasn't a sacrifice. I loved bringing him pleasure. I loved the fact that we went and did that. And if you ever really love someone, you know that sometimes it's your pleasure to please them. And what Paul is saying here is that in the same way, the more you meditate on who Christ is and what he's done for you, the more your heart goes out to him and the more you love him and the more that, the more pleasure it becomes for you to please him. Yes, through obedience... But he doesn't say obedience. He says pleasure. He says please him because, because you want to do it. Not out of fear. Not because you're afraid that he's going to get you if you don't. Or because he's going to condemn you. Or he's going to reject you. Or because he's the cosmic policeman up there looking for something that you've done wrong. No, it's because I want, I didn't do it... Before. I didn't do, I didn't take Blake to the monster rally because I was afraid that someday we'd be sitting in a psychiatrist's office and he'd be tolling me in front of the psychiatrist. "I'd Dad, we could, I had a great relationship and I'd have been a better son and all this bad stuff wouldn't have happened to me if he had just taken me to the monster rally. I didn't take him to the monster truck rally for that. I took him because it brought him pleasure and it made me, gave me pleasure to bring him pleasure. If you try to obey Christ out of any other motivation than just, I want to do this for you, Jesus, because of what you did for me. If you try to obey Christ out of any other motivation, it will make you a self-righteous, shriveled up, small, little, arrogant, snotty soul. That's what it'll make you. And so what Paul's saying is that the way you get more cosmos and less chaos is bringing more of your life under the kingship of Christ. Not out of compulsion, but by recharging. This is why we do this during Advent. It's why we do it every Sunday, really. It's recharging your sense of love for him because of what he's done for you and who he is. And so really we're always going back to the gospel. Do you understand that? That the door you came in to know Christ through, the gospel, that same door is the door through which you grow spiritually. You never get past the gospel. The more you reflect on what Jesus did on the cross, who he was, how far he traveled down, how much he sacrificed for you, the more you meditate on that, the more you go, oh, my goodness. Thank you for what you did for me. I want to spend my life pleasing you. Okay, last thing. I know, I got to close. Uh, Some of you say, okay, yeah, I need more cosmos and I need less chaos in my life. How do I get it? And I would just say to you guys, there are some of you here, You know, I've been talking to you. You have a relationship with Christ. Some point in time, long ago, you accepted Christ as your Savior. I've been talking to you. Now I want to talk to those of you who have never accepted Christ as your Savior. I just want to say something to you. I want to say that if you want more cosmos and less chaos, the way you get it is by entering the kingdom. And I know, I know that some of you say to yourself, as soon as you say that, as soon as I say that, I know what you do. You go like this, you go... Okay, great. I'll clean up my life. I'm going to clean up my life and I'm going to get into the kingdom because I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to just pull it all together now. I'm going to get my act together and God will be okay with me. No, no. No, no. Look at verse 12. And then we'll close. Verse 12. Paul says, Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Look at that word qualified for just a moment. I just want to say something about that. Um, You know what it means to be qualified, right? To be qualified for something? To be qualified for something, you have to meet certain criteria. So like if you wanted to be an accountant, you'd have to take... um, Uh, You have to take classes, uh, business classes in school, you got to get a degree, and then you also have to go and you got to pass a CPA exam, right? And then you're qualified, okay? But in that case, you qualify yourself. In other words, you do the work, you do the work, and then you're qualified, right? Is that the way it goes? Okay. But what's so unique and what's so counterintuitive to Christianity is that what this passage says is that God does the qualifying for you. Did you see that? He has qualified you. And then in verse 13, he has rescued you. God does the work. In other words, in other words, he's not saying go, go clean up your life and then when you're done, call me and we'll see if you've done enough. He says, no. He says, he says I'll tell you what. I'll do it for you. I'll do the qualifying. I'll do the rescuing. Now, how counterintuitive is that? Christianity is the only religion, the only philosophy that says something like that. In every other world religion, you've got to qualify yourself before the gods. But in Christianity, God says, no, I'll qualify you. I'll do the work for you. He says, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Uh, the dominion, the area where Satan is allowed to rule. And he's brought us into the kingdom Of the Son whom He loves, in whom, there it is again, in whom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The way you enter the kingdom is through Jesus Himself. His death qualifies those who accept Him by faith. It is not your goodness. He took your unworthiness. You would say, I feel unworthy. He'd say, you're right, you're unworthy, but I'm going to take it on you, and I'm going to give you my worthiness. I'm going to exchange your unworthiness for my worthiness. And he did that on the cross. And let me just ask you, can you see why we've called this series Incomparable? Because what other king would do that for his enemies? Only the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is supreme over the universe and the sustainer of all that is. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you this morning. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Lord for those that have never come to a place in their lives where they've made you king over their lives, or would you move in their hearts today, bring them to a point that they recognize that they don't have to clean their life up before you, that you do that for them. For those that have come to a place where they have uh, placed their trust in you, Lord Jesus, would you encourage them this morning? Maybe speak to them about areas of their lives that they have not yet brought under your kingship. And Lord, would you just encourage them to do that? Because it's in you that all things, lives, marriages, businesses, churches, it's in you that all things hold together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of Colossians 1. We, we are moved to worship you as King of Kings. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.